Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're selling out. I think I've said that at least a dozen times. Whenever we do one that people would actually want to hear, a popular (laughs) topic that people like. We want your clicks. That's all (laughs) that we want. Justin and I have got some uh, chilled monkey brains (laughs) and some snake surprise here, and we're chowing down, and we're going to be talking about Steven Spielberg this week. And specifically... The bad Steven Spielberg, or the bad perceived by the public. Because even the most successful film director of all time had a couple that just didn't quite, um, um, I'm, I'm struggling to think what how to finish that sentence. <laughs> uh, didn't quite hit it out of the park. Didn't I say this go. last week? You did say it last week. Wait, that's not a bit? Like, that no, actually no. happened again? <laughs> So, Steven Spielberg, we're not going to go into his history. You know who he is. Probably the most, like, famous director of all time. But why don't we talk a little bit about, like, what's our perception of Steven Spielberg? Uh, Are we fans? Do you like him? I'm a huge Steven Spielberg fan. I know it's easy when you're getting into university and you're studying film, which I never did, to be like, well, Steven Spielberg is everything that's wrong with cinema. He ended the new Hollywood, Mm -hmm. you know? He brought in this blockbuster franchise hellscape that we're in today. When, in reality, all Spielberg was doing was... Uh, making the movies that he loved as a kid in a very polished and more expensive way. And what ended up happening is that when something is popular, everybody imitates it and does it very shittily. I will confess to having maybe fallen prey to that line of thinking before that Mm -hmm. he was the guy who ruined Hollywood. I mean, listen, I like Spielberg. There, There are certain of his movies that I loved growing up I, he's never he's not somebody who I would ever rank as a favorite. Oh, I would definitely rank him as a favorite. Okay, and I think it's just personal. I think his preoccupations are not my preoccupations. There's mm-hmm. there's kind of there's kind of nothing in his worldview that speaks specifically to me. So I feel kind of on the outside looking in. I, I like his movies the way that anyone likes his movies, just as, you know, fun experiences. I think that the way that I approach it is the way that Spielberg himself talks about his movies, in that they're like thrill rides most of the yeah. time. And even in a documentary that came out last year he still talks about that what obsesses him is the way a camera moves to like relay information which is something very telling about a filmmaker this late in his career that he's not uh, someone like Soderbergh where he's like what's really my passion is like performances and reality uh-huh. he's still like no 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 I like you know constructing the perfect puzzle yeah well whenever a Spielberg movie comes out and I go see it I'm always struck again by like there's nobody who knows the nuts and bolts of putting images on screen and editing them together like this guy well there's an absolute master there's a reason that he's as popular as he is and it basically comes down to the basic math that what he's doing is so universal and it moves people either emotionally like in something like et or just excitingly like jurassic park or jaws that that's why it translates and that's why he's so big the milieu that he often works in you know like suburbia not a milieu that i particularly like sorry to our suburban listeners i grew up in suburbia (laughs) yeah uh you grew up in suburbia yeah you know his his politics he's kind of a middle of the road democrat you know Mm -hmm. doesn't particularly speak to me there's nothing you know he's a he's a good liberal his his sentimentality kind of often rubs me the wrong way Mm -hmm. it's it gets a little mushy at times or even manipulative in a way and the his he's very interested in stories of like fathers and sons Mm -hmm. which it's not my preoccupation what can i tell you but you don't even the way that like the films are exciting or the way they're constructed that doesn't have enough value for you oh it has value for me i mean like if i go see jaws yeah you know it it works me like Mm -hmm. it works anyone it's a terrific entertainment but i also i've only seen jaws once and i don't think about it that often Do you think that that may be because of the kind of pathion that he's put into? And because of that, there's a subconscious kind of like, 
well, if everybody likes it and everybody thinks it's really good, and I think it's good, it's not there's a bit that of resentment. Good. There's a resentment there, yeah. Uh, absolutely, I yeah. think. And it also, like, some of that, I think, colors the backlash to Schindler's List mm-hmm. that Schindler's List has had because, you know, Schindler's List in and of itself is a very good movie. Yes. But the fact that it has become, you know, Hollywood's ultimate Holocaust movie renders it problematic because the story it tells about this one success story in the middle of a massive moral failure that was the Holocaust. You know, the fact that this kind of uplifting story is is the standard bearer of Hollywood's Holocaust cinema, that's problematic. And when people talk about, like, something like Schindler's List, it makes you feel good at the end of it, yeah. which kind of, you think that moment has passed because, like, the ending is kind of cathartic and like, oh, well, it's not like that anymore. Well, yeah, exactly. And, like, the Holocaust, one of the fucking worst events in world history. Yeah. Um, that, but that said, I mean, uh, Schindler's List, I don't want to be too down on Schindler's list because it's in many ways a very uh, powerful and uncompromising film about the holocaust i don't know but while spielberg is someone that as a kid i loved, i love jurassic park he was probably along with george lucas one of the first filmmakers that i could identify whether it be him appearing in animaniac film like my parents knew who he was or you know at the et ride at universal studios the video intro to it would have him come out and talk to you he'd be like wow that's crazy Hi, i'm steven spielberg you'll be riding these bikes and helping et you know get home or whatever and there's something kind of mercenary about the way that he did get his position as the world's most famous director because even as a teen he wanted to be the world's most famous director going like well i need to direct a film before orson welles did well there's that famous story about which is apocryphal i believe about how he he like went into universal and like set up an office for himself without having been hired in the documentary that came out last year there's a guy that's like no that probably did not happen of course not but it's a good story (laughs) but he was uh, put under the wing of sid scheinberg who just loved his short film amblin and was given like tons of opportunity just to prove himself which he did over and over again Mm -hmm. because you can bring something that you shoot with joan crawford which was his first like lengthy uh tv show that he shot and bring it in and make it work like you can basically do anything (laughs) and there's this myth around spielberg that at first there was nothing but hits like he made duel like wow you won't believe that a tv movie can do these things and then he made jaws and people kind of forget that he made a lot of tv movies between there he made savage he made the horror film Something Evil, which is terrible. He did a lot of TV episodes too, like Marcus Welby, MD, stuff like that. He directed the pilot of Columbo. Oh, nice. He probably still gets royalties off that. (laughs) And he said that the way that he approached it was that he wanted it to be as cinematic as possible. And I think that's Spielberg in a nutshell, is that any material that he's approaching is like, all right, how can I make this compelling by using the camera or editing or music? Because John Williams is so associated with him in the way that it kind of pulls the strings of what's going on. Well, it has been remarked upon about The Post, his mm-hmm. most recent movie, in that scene where all the journalists are going through the Pentagon Papers in that house, the way he, you know, moves his camera, you know, through this house to make it visually interesting, this not particularly interesting scene. Yeah, because he's a master of blocking. Yeah. When you show a scene and you have characters move around in it, and you also have the camera moving to change the way the visual information is being portrayed. What is important, what is not important, and you do it without a cut. And that's something that any director, as they start making movies, firstly 
that's what obsesses them. Mm -hmm. Like, how can I do long takes or move the camera in crazy ways? Because that's something that's very tangible. So Spielberg made Jaws, massive hit. Close Encounters, massive hit. And how was he going to follow up these two mega hits? It was going to be the biggest comedy production of all time. And it was a film that maybe the people listening here have not seen because it was 1979's 1941. Now, this is a film about uh, what happened in Los Angeles after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and the kind of hysteria that was around the city. Was there a real historical incident behind this? Like there was a mistake about a possible Japanese invasion of Hollywood. And so there was a lot of hysteria around that. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly what it's based on. It was written by a who's who at the time of like the new Hollywood would seen John Milius, the director of Conan the Barbarian and uh, Red Dawn, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, the guys who would go on to make Back to the Future. At this point, uh, young filmmakers who had made I Want to Hold Your Hand, which had tanked. Mm. uh, And Spielberg's like, okay, just write this movie for me. And a cast of who's who's of comedy stars on screen. Not just comedy stars. I mean, representing comedy are... uh hot off SNL, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, plus smaller roles for the SCTV vets John Candy and Joe Flaherty. You have Treat Williams in the film. A young Treat Williams, <laughs> a young Tim Matheson. A lot of old vets, though, like Lionel Stander, Slim Pickens. Um, <laughs> starring Slim Pickens, pretty much. <laughs> starring Slim Pickens. Warren Oates. Uh, I don't know. Ned Beatty. And probably even more kind of little C-grade actors that Spielberg just loved and put in the movie that, like, we don't know. I mean, our favorite actor, Eddie Deason, has a lot of screen time in this. (laughs) And this is obviously Spielberg wanting to do his It's a Mad Mad World. Yeah, well, that's the movie I thought of a lot while watching this, because like It's a Mad Mad World, it's this uh, very successful director who has shown really not a lot of aptitude for comedy, who's like, well, I'm... Now, now that I'm I'm dignifying this genre with my presence, it has to be the biggest comedy. It has to be the greatest, you know. And this is a movie that I showed to a laser blast screening group, me and a dozen of my friends. Uh, it was a Christmas movie because it does take place during Christmas. It's in the background and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I never felt my stomach drop further, like right down to my feet where it rolled across the ground, having to sit there. For two hours and 36 minutes. This is the director's cut. Yeah. Watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spielberg talks in a feature-length documentary that's on the Blu-ray and the DVD about that when they previewed the film, when people saw Jaws, they would cover their eyes because they were too scared. And when people saw 1941, they would cover their ears because it's too loud. <laughs> and someone at my laser blast screening actually did that. She's <laughs> like, it's so loud. Turn it down. Yeah, it's funny. This is one of those movies from the end of the new Hollywood, like Heaven's Gate, New York, New York, um, one from the heart. Self-indulgent wankfest. Yeah, self-indulgent wankfest that tanked the new Hollywood. <sighs> but most of those other movies have been reclaimed somehow. They have a they have a following. This one has stubbornly resisted critical reappraisal. I think there are like one or two people out there who are are trying to make a case for how it's a satire of wartime hysteria. Yeah, I mean... Which it is, I guess. Yeah, it's also endless. Now, 
before I start, you know, kind of ripping into it, which is very easy, I have to say, I really like this movie. <laughs> and I would recommend that you not see it. <laughs> like, this is a very specific kind of flavor. You know what it is? It's like that fish that Homer eats in that episode where they go to the sushi restaurant. Oh, yeah. Where, yeah. like, all of it is poison and there's one piece that he can eat. I feel like every time I watch it, I eat that good piece and that everybody else eats that poison one. Because I can consciously understand that this is not funny. Spielberg doesn't have a through line of emotion or anything in this picture. Mm -hmm. Everyone is awful that's on screen. Oh, yeah. Like, as human beings and their acting, which is comprised of just screaming for two hours. I thought John Belushi was borderline funny, just because you're giving me a face. Yeah. Just because Belushi is, like, a naturally funny guy, he's given nothing to work with, but just, like, watching him kind of swagger into a room and make a face is is enough to get me to smile a little. A film that's, like, sweating so much that it Danes that they have to make John Belushi squeak every time that he moves or falls over because they feel like it's not funny enough. Okay, didn't you like the part a bit when he crashes his plane into Hollywood and he jumps on the wing and he goes, Geronimo! Oh, that was then, hilarious. And he opens his parachute. <laughs> yeah. This is a film that, like, watching it this time, arms crossed, like, giving it my full attention, I actually chuckled and laughed a lot. Okay. Because, like, there's a moment where uh, one of the characters gets his uh, coat lit on fire and he's like, oh, oh, put it out, put it out. And for the next 10 minutes, that character is smoking. Like the back of his coat okay. is smoking. That is not funny in of itself. Yeah. But like seeing it on screen and just thinking like, man, that must have been so hard to engineer and to put together. And the level of complexity just to have this on screen made me laugh. Well, it reminded me a little bit of Altman's Popeye, mm-hmm. where it's so dense within every frame is so dense with information and there are so many gags happening everywhere that like you know i i'm not laughing at this movie mm-hmm. but at least there's a lot of stuff to look at oh you know? yeah there's like gags in the background at one point the little rascals are just there yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah it's not commented on it's just they're just in the background but i mean at the risk of sounding like a, a pompous doofus analyzing humor to take a scene like when dan Aykroyd drives his tank into the paint factory and and paint's flying everywhere and people are falling into the paint somebody falling into paint in and of itself is not that funny but if you look at a three stooges uh short like that one where the three stooges are walking up that staircase with uh, a big brick of ice and then at the bottom of a staircase a guy gets out of a car and says oh thanks for this cake it's not him it's not the Stooges dropping the ice and having it hit the guy and have the cake go in his face. That's not the funny thing. It's the anticipation. It's that grinding inevitability of, oh, he's going to get hit with, you know. So this movie doesn't have that grinding inevitability. Which is crazy considering that Spielberg and Jaws showed such a mastery of suspense and yeah. the payoff of yeah. that. And he doesn't understand it at all in 1941. All he can think of is, all right. How can we make it bigger and bigger and bigger? This is a film that ends 90 minutes in and you look at the time and you're like, holy fuck, there's an hour left to this. Yeah. And like comedy is not things exploding or people getting knocked over. But for me, the uh, cumulative effect of it happening just like made me chuckle every time. Well, there's a lot to like in this movie, just the, the sheer scale of it. And visually, it's you know beautiful this massive set that he's created kind of like one from the heart and like the way that he films this comedy and like long tracking shots yeah that 
in of itself is not that funny. Like, it actually takes away from the comedy a little yes. bit. Because, like, he's in love with the idea of the camera kind of going around and stuff like that. He's doing everything that people accuse him of, but to no point. Like, it's <laughs> empty. It's just kind of there. Yeah. There is one great sequence, if anybody wants to check it out on YouTube, is a dance sequence, oh, which yeah. is, like, the closest, other than Temple of Doom, that Spielberg has gotten to a musical number, <laughs> where, like, it's like a fight, chase dance while all this crazy stuff is going on that's really fun and it's it's amazing just to look at yeah again so much stuff going on <laughs> and uh, john williams has like a really great score that goes mm. through that sequence john williams actually said that he thinks 1941 is one of his best kind of marches that he's written mm. and it's throughout the film it never ends like imagine jaws if the jaws theme song played for 146 minutes yeah so i don't know i would uh, recommend people watch it actually i would actually recommend this movie but i would also say you're not gonna like it yeah you're gonna have a bad time but you've never seen anything like it i've recommended it as this is a movie that i enjoy watching that's the biggest comedy ever and it's not funny. You're not going to laugh. And don't watch it all in one sitting. <laughs> no, because you will die. <laughs> I cannot imagine being trapped in a movie theater oh. and this playing. Even though that the version that went to theaters actually had a half hour cut out of it that supposedly makes it completely incoherent. It's, I mean, it's already co- incoherent at this longer version. It's on the Blu-ray and I don't think I will ever touch it with a 10-foot pole. Because, <laughs> like, come on. If I'm going to watch 1941, I'll watch the extended edition. Mm-hmm. But speaking of Temple of Doom and musical numbers... Uh, Me and Will also watched a second Indiana Jones film. And people listening may go, whoa, that's not a bad Steven Spielberg film. And I think that, you know, that was a little bit different when it came out critically. Um, I think when it came out, there was a lot of backlash to it, Mm -hmm. first of all. I mean, there was backlash for how violent it was. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is the movie that created the PG-13 rating. Uh, Yeah, because a man's heart gets ripped out on screen. (laughs) Yes. Um, And there was also backlash that continues to this day and has really only gotten louder about the movie's racism and misogyny, both of which are very real. Very, very real. People have tried to argue like, oh, it was a different time. They didn't know what was going on. Uh, Stephen and George were told by the screenwriters, I don't think that like... You know, people in India are really going to like all of this stuff. They're probably not going to let you film. And George Lucas supposedly went, oh, come on. We're George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. They're going to let us. And they didn't let him film. Nope. So they had to go film it in, what, Malaysia? (laughs) Yeah, they filmed it somewhere else, mostly on studio sets. I I was reading the review today in reverse shot in their Spielberg symposium, and uh, Farhan Zaman wrote uh, something that I didn't realize. During the heart-ripping scene, you know, the voodoo Indian people keep chanting the name of the god Kali, who's an actual Hindu god. Mm -hmm. So it's a movie that, you know, in addition to all its other sins, like its kind of white savior narrative, it's, you know, uh, kind of unthinking acceptance of the colonial British power. In At the end of the movie, the British just show up and save the day. And yeah. everyone's like, yay! And then, and then all the Indians just crowd around Indiana Jones. Or, you know, the fact that it depicts Indian people as, you know... Um, savages. Savages. Or, basically. like, brainwashed kind of, like, zombies. But in addition to that, it, like, takes their religion and just conflates it with voodoo black magic. Yeah. So it's pretty bad. And, you know, uh, Willie Scott, played by Mrs. Spielberg, Kate Capshaw... Uh, one of the worst characters in film history, I want to say. And while Short Round does do a lot, it still makes him into a stereotype as at one point they're walking on bugs and it's crunching and Short Round goes, wait, what is that sound? That's not fortune cookies. Woof. 
but but. <laughs> but this is also okay yeah but, but this is also a movie though that i think a lot of people like you and i grew up watching on video and grew up loving i when i was a kid it was my favorite indiana jones movie but... uh, mine was the last crusade mm-hmm. and that was only because that as a kid our babysitter that was one of the only vhs tapes that she had and we must have seen it a hundred times and never got tired of it yeah it's just so when you're a kid especially it's so action-packed the whole second half of this movie doesn't let up and you know kids like to be scared Mm -hmm. right kids like it like and it's a it's a delicate line about what's too scary for a kid and what's just right but yeah the this this appealed to me. Steven Spielberg said that when he actually watched the first cut, it came in at an hour and 55 minutes and it was too fast. Mm-hmm. Like he was like, all right, we got to slow this down because it needs to breathe a little bit. And it comes from the fact that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, when they made this film, were in a bad place. They were like, both divorced. Yeah. And we're dealing with that. So they made this like dark, miserable and mean spirited film as an answer to the emotions that they were going through. There are some really brutal scenes of Indiana Jones being whipped. Uh, The kid being whipped. Yeah, a lot of awful child abuse. But, you know, we can't avoid it, though, that this movie is tons of fun. I really enjoyed watching it <laughs> yes, this it week. <laughs> it was, yeah. it's like colorful. It like, once it gets going, it never stops. It's imaginative in the way stuff is filmed. Well, I said to you on this time, the, the middle of this movie from when they're in the bug room mm-hmm. uh, to when they're watching the voodoo ritual, and it feels like an Italian horror movie. Mm-hmm. And if you had put a goblin score over it instead of the John Williams score, it like it would, it would click into focus. You know, visually, he He's shooting it with all these like bright reds and bright yellows, just like like these shafts of light mm-hmm. um, and a lot of like weird, cool smoke effects. And, you know, everything because this is a movie from the 80s before CGI, everything is so tangible. They're on like real sets. You were talking about that, like one of the reasons that you didn't like it that much sticking back on it is that it felt like a theme park that you would go visit and walk around in. And now that's just a positive to it. Yeah. That, like everything is there. And like the thing that lowers people into the lava is like a big skull man with skull yeah hands i also think i mean in addition to being like super fun with you know minecart chases my, yeah. miniatures going around a little stop motion indiana jones you know the scene on the bridge uh suspenseful and we're sitting there going was harrison ford really on that bridge and it's like yeah there was no other way to fake it like he's on there so in addition to that i find this movie just an interesting insight into spielberg's ugly side mm-hmm. and 1941 is an interesting insight in, yes. into it too because 1941 super problematic very sexist it has that like animal house style of comedy uh like there's a character in it who's like you know when she's on a plane she's an infomaniac uh, and like a, a running gag is that like treat williams basically wants to sexual assault one of the characters right and like he's the villain but like it's played for laughs right indiana jones and the temple of doom captures spielberg's you know uh, i guess i guess privilege you yeah. Oh, he, like he captures his racism at the time. And when you're talking uh, about Spielberg destroying kind of cinema, uh, you know, Indiana Jones is a problematic film in the sense that like kids see this and they just kind of absorb it and it becomes text for them. Like, oh, Indian people are either poor 
Or they're like evil brainwashed cult members. And like when people hate on Spielberg for being kind of the American establishment filmmaker, this is part of it. I mean, mm-hmm. that scene with the Indian food, you know, chilled monkey brains and yeah. snake surprise, that's him pandering to kind of the mainstream. Um, Xenophobic idea. Yeah, aver- aversion to foreign culture. Like this, this is part of what people hate about Spielberg. Uh, when we talked about bad Spielberg movies, you know, there's ones that are very easy to go to. Like we could talk about Always. Which you want this week yeah not good like there's not really much to discuss uh, other than the fact that it's interesting in the sense that like spielberg made this movie because it's a remake of his favorite film of all time a guy named joe Mm -hmm. but spielberg has nothing new to say and like either visually or story-wise and doesn't even really craft very exciting set pieces so the only reason for this film to exist which is about uh, richard dreyfus playing a um pilot who dies and comes back as a ghost who can kind of like you know, push the world in specific directions and help a young pilot who's falling in love with um, the woman that he loved as well, played by Holly Hunter, John Goodman's his best friend. It just is nothing there. And it's two hours long. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, oh, I understand why this film isn't held in very high regard. It was like, it was a passion project for Spielberg. And it sounds like he didn't really have a tangible reason to make it. Like a guy named Joe, the original directed by Victor Fleming, stars Spencer Tracy as a pilot who dies during World War II and then helps a soldier fall in love with the woman that Spencer Tracy was in love with. That's way more exciting than the Spielberg version. It's like, Mm -hmm. why remake it? Like that version is instantly more interesting. Well, I'm glad you watched it because it has for my entire life looked very unappealing. <laughs> and you will never watch it. Just it's... looks like sm- schmaltzy garbage. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Spielberg is a reactionary filmmaker in the sense that like he's very aware of the way the public perceives him. Like after a while, he didn't want to be just like the thrill filmmaker. So he'll go try to do something like The Color Purple or he'll make Schindler's List or he'll do something like Amistad, like another kind of forgotten Spielberg film to prove to all of the naysayers, oh no, look, I can do other stuff. Mm -hmm. But I watch Amistad this week. I'm sorry if I'm saying the title incorrectly. (laughs) And it's Spielberg doing something different. Like he's in Lincoln mode where he's trying to present something kind of more dryly and without these huge flourishes, but he's still fighting against the urge of like Anthony Hopkins has this big speech at the end of the movie and he underlays it with this John Williams, like tinkly score. It's yeah. like, what are you doing? Yeah. So I saw Amistad this week, a, a movie that is only watched by people in contexts like this. Yes. This was his first movie for DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. It, it was, it was also, so in 1993, he had Jurassic Park and Schindler's List biggest year of his career then he went silent for four years while he built dreamworks Mm -hmm. and then he came back with the lost world jurassic park it's bad like we don't need to talk about it we could have talked about on this show but you've all seen it and then his schindler's list that year was supposed to be this movie about slavery and it tanked this was based on a real historical incident from 1839 when after the slave trade had been outlawed but the existing slaves were still slaves Mm -hmm. if you're born while your mother is a slave you remain a slave so it was a court case concerning a slave uprising on a ship and the question was did the slaves on the ship come from a slave port in Cuba were they born there as slaves or were they illegally taken from Africa and the case proved that they were legally taken from Africa and the the movie very much positions this as a uh, forerunner to the Civil War yeah and it's a film that from the first frame announces that it is important <laughs> I was very surprised by how much it has in common with a lot of the later, more successful Spielberg movies. I mean, Lincoln, obviously, because Spielberg loves America and he 
is very fascinated by like political process mm-hmm. and and by the idea that our our American institutions are going to fix our American atrocities, you know? There's a great article that uh, came out in the recent film comment about The Post by uh, Yonka Talu that talks about that Spielberg's obsession is process. Yeah. Like when he has a movie to hang that on and that all the dramatic pieces can be moving around it, that's what he finds fascinating and ways to present this in a dynamic fashion. And I mean, maybe I'm just talking out of my ass here, but Lincoln, when it came out in 2012, an election year, the middle of the Obama era, that one resonated so strongly. It hit the zeitgeist so hard. And yet this other movie, which is very similar to it in many ways, didn't. And I'm not quite sure what to attribute that to, except that maybe people were very... Like Obama was, I think, very much sold to people. The the idea around Obama was that he was a pragmatist, that he was somebody who was working complicated, you know, four dimensional chess deals in Mm -hmm. Congress for incremental change. And that's kind of what Lincoln is about, you know. And Amistad, one of the issues with it is that there's no way around it. The film always is presented as homework. And like, you know, this is a important you have to watch it just stay in your seat like it may not always be enjoyable and i feel like spielberg is still struggling in that mode because if you want to say something about lincoln it's not boring it's actually really funny yeah but i mean both of them oddly enough are about you know the minutiae mm-hmm. of of these cases yeah. you know and he's still like in lincoln and in amistad gets those broad emotional beats in there like at one point um one of the slaves played by uh Jamin Hansu stands up screaming freedom in court. Oh, the worst scene in the movie. Oh my god. Uh, let us free. Yeah, he that's says, what he says. While the John Williams score plays. Oh, painful. And that's like Spielberg kind of losing grips with the movie that he wants to make because a lot of it is very dry. And Spielberg blames the uh, failure on the film on the fact that he was trying to make this dry picture to do something that he doesn't usually do. But yet, oddly enough, I think Lincoln is often kind of dry at times. It's often about... It's a movie that requires you to pay attention and to care about this, this like, backroom dealing, you know? I feel like Lincoln, he... Spielberg had more control over, like, what he likes to do and the tone the story has to take. Yeah, Lincoln didn't have lapses in taste like that scene where he stands up and says, let us free. Or uh, there is a sequence in the middle of the film where there's a flashback to how the slaves got to America. And it's Spielberg kind of gritting his teeth and going... I want to make like the worst thing that you've ever seen when it comes to slavery that like watching it is like, wow, this is seems like a deleted scene from like goodbye, uncle Tom or something like that. It is pretty brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is like Spielberg kind of losing control of the movie he's making going toward a goal instead of following his own instincts. One of the knocks on this movie is that, you know, it's, it's a movie about slavery and about, you know, the white, lawyers uh, and and abolitionists who who tried to defeat it i mean i think spielberg is is trying to give his yeah i think he's he's well-meaning yeah i think he's very aware of the fact that this is a white savior film i never got the sense that like he wanted to put the slaves to the background or as pawns which was also accused in lincoln yeah that like you never see any african-americans really in prominent roles but that's what that let us free scene has to be about right? yes and like he's always coming back to the slaves in the film and trying to give them perspective on what's going on to the point that the film often feels very disjointed and that characters can disappear for like 40 minutes before coming back in mm. he maybe exoticizes the slaves a little yeah you know he, he definitely does it, uh, might, it might be hard 
not to. It, you know, Spielberg is a guy that is always well-meaning in what he's doing, uh-huh. even though that it often like kind of gets away from him. Like The Color Purple, where he was very conscious about the fact that he wanted like African-American kind of creatives around him making the movie but he still is a white guy doing this and he's spielberg so like the color purple is very like well kind of framed and it looks beautiful when it's a story that you know shouldn't have that style around it so amistad flawed film but you know it can be worse i think it's fine like if it's not bad and i think that's the legacy that it has at this point it's not always like you watch always (laughs) and amistad side to side wow amistad is going to be like the lincoln spielberg's (laughs) filmography another film that i wanted to watch when people talk about bad spielberg is one that just came out a few years ago the bfg that i didn't even see in theaters because i'm like meh disappeared without a trace it didn't do well at the box office either somebody fucked up you know the idea of a a steven spielberg directed roald dahl adaptation distributed by disney that that should have made money i think that from a marketing standpoint they never quite knew how to sell it to an audience they never knew how to sell the bfg himself yes as a creation because like that's one of the reasons that i didn't see the movie in theaters is i'm like oh this is gonna be kind of you know very kitty and spielberg kind of phoning it in but man spielberg is firing on all cylinders on this yeah you liked it i saw it in theaters yep i thought it was imaginative it's fun i like the bfg character i like sophie the main child character in the film i thought it was pleasant a little slow it's a film that's not challenging in any way it's actually very small scale for like Mm -hmm. a story where a little girl meets a giant they go to giant land uh the queen of england gets involved in it It, but it's mostly like takes place in like one or two locations it's very gentle Mm -hmm. i think it has a little bit of trouble translating the whimsy of roald dahl to the screen there's a there's a heaviness to to the movie you know i think that as spielberg gets more into cg land Mm -hmm. and the ability to control the camera whichever way that he wants i think that's a detriment to him there's kind of a a floatiness to films like tintin or the bfg Mm -hmm. that like kind of rob the film of impact like something like jurassic park like you feel like you're there even though there's all the cg stuff going on and the bfg there's always a disconnect through these exciting things mm. like spielberg crafts the bfg a lot of the set pieces and these long tracking shots but it doesn't mean anything when it's disconnected from the physical reality of movies yeah definitely but the bfg still has all those things that i like about spielberg there's like an inventiveness to the set pieces the comedy is a lot of like hong kong style like hiding and trying not to be spotted and the camera working in unison with what's going on but at the end of the day it's very minor Spielberg Mm -hmm. and I think that Spielberg is aware of that and the reaction to that has kind of led into the next few movies that he's making like The Post which is an important Spielberg film yeah the reception to that's interesting because it's a movie that again was aimed right at the zeitgeist and it has been politely received Mm -hmm. but it hasn't really caught fire has it no it's a movie that seems almost too calculated for this moment maybe Mm. you know i can understand but the film itself like when you sit down and watch it it's actually spielberg working in like goofy mode Uh like the camera's all over the place and the way that he's presenting there's never personally I felt a like heavy, like this is important, like something like Amistad has. It gets a little bit that way in the last 15 minutes, though, don't you think? It was a little bit of speechifying. That's fine. But like the difference between me and you is that I'm all for like melodrama (laughs) or emotional manipulation, especially when someone like Spielberg is doing it. It doesn't bother me that much as long as he's diving headlong into it Mm -hmm. and is not trying to be like, oh, I'm not doing this, but I'm really doing this. Sure. 
you know, I don't feel there's that much that's cynical about the film that Steven Spielberg makes. And I think that's proven by the way people talk about him. That, like, even when he was coming up in New Hollywood, he was always the twerp or the nerd of the group mm. that was kind of, like, trying to crack jokes and was kind of, like, a little bit out of the social circle of all these cool guys, like... Uh, um, Francis Ford Coppola or Martin Scorsese. And they were all having sex. Yeah, and doing drugs, which Spielberg never did. Yeah. Because there's just like a joie de vivre about him. And I think that's difficult for me to look at his films, which he is approaching like, all right, how do I construct this? Because I feel like he genuinely thinks that these things are important. It's not like exploitative in a sense sure. that other filmmakers, like some hack, it's, from, it's it from the heart. Yeah, exactly. Sure. It's from the heart. Sure. Whether you buy into that or not. Sure. Uh, you may notice that we didn't talk about Hook, which is often considered the worst Steven Spielberg film of all time. And that's because you know it's bad. And I also want to link it to Ready Player One, which is just about to come out. In the sense that the Hook and the Ready Player One seem like the same movie, which is an old man that wants to be cool. <laughs> uh, hey, hello, my fellow teens, if you will. I got a feeling there are some people out there who probably love Hook. Do you, yeah, I mean, people love Hook. That, that's a nostalgia thing, though. They're like, wrong to love yeah. it, I think. I think it's awful. It's a mess. And it's a film that even Spielberg has talked about, like, eh, I was just kind of shooting from the hip. There's, like, photos of him, like, playing Game Boy between setups. That's, that's a calculated, cynical movie. Yeah. That's a movie that Spielberg is like, all right, what's popular? Oh, skateboarders and, like, kids with mohawks, Robin Williams. Yeah. And, like, it's a film about an old guy wanting to be young, and it has all the bad hallmarks about that. And I mean, if you if you want a movie with a bad set, with yeah. a, tacky, a tacky aesthetic... <laughs> Go watch Hook. Dustin Hoffman, awful. Yeah, that's a film completely out of Spielberg's control. There's an apocryphal story that after the premiere, he went to his limo and cried. <laughs> but, you know, I like to believe things like that because that shows them human a little bit. Sure. Uh, and Hook, nostalgia, 100%. Anybody who likes it, that's the position they're coming from. Anyway, Spielberg, keep an eye on him. Yeah, I mean, Ready Player One... We're going to see it, right? I don't miss Spielberg movies, you know? Uh, and, you know, like, we haven't seen Ready Player One. I'm 100% sure we're going to talk about it. But, like, it's a film of an older man who thinks that this stuff is cool when the actual source material is toxic and terrible. So this week for our Patreon, we actually watched a, a little talked about Joe Dante film, Matinee, which I feel is getting more attention recently because it got a new Blu-ray release from Scream Factory. And we use this as an opportunity to talk a little bit about William Castle, the uh, legendary exploitation filmmaker who inspired it. And, you know, we've done a Joe Dante episode in the past, and this is a chance to just revisit him a little bit. Yeah, to talk about Joe Dante a little bit more from a distance of like where he is now mm -hmm. and like what his legacy means. And also to talk about within Castle. You know all of Castle's films, uh, House on Haunted Hill, 13 Ghosts. And if you haven't watched them, you got to listen to this podcast because you'll learn which ones to check out, which we won't spoil. <laughs> you may be surprised. By the way, Joe Dante, uh, protege of Steven Spielberg. Exactly. So which, a little bit of a link there. $5 a month. You can check us out on Patreon. Just search Important Cinema Club and you get a new episode every week. And if you're not a Patreon member, we have so many episodes at this point. Yeah, like, fuck you. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> that you should check it out. And um, I just got to say, we were talking about doing a Blu-ray release of Detour. And we're not going to do that for a variety of reasons, but we will be doing a commentary for Detour and that will be available to our Patreon subscribers. And we haven't done this in a long time, but I just want to thank all the people that became Patreon subscribers. I'm going to do this very fast and I apologize if I say your name incorrectly. And you will. I will, guaranteed. <laughs> and those people are 
Shen, Tom, Sean, Serena, PJ, Edward, Lucas, Anna, Ben, Albert, Michael, Simon, Thomas, Lauren, Alex, John, William, Borgia, Max, Dashiell, Dom, Aaron, Liam, Chris, Gart, Jeffrey, Dustin, Kevin, Allen, Ziosi, John, Ruari, Gabe, Oliver, K, Tyler, Daniel, Sean, Zenick, Nate, Gregory, John, Jeremy, Jessen, David. I hope I got everybody that we haven't mentioned before. Thank you so much for being a Patreon subscriber. I predicted correctly. There were some mispronunciations. <laughs> we really appreciate it. <laughs> so as far as letters go, we have one here from Elmer McKinga. And he goes, Dear Will and Justin, your next episode will be number 107, which means you're only 10 episodes away from the glorious Bang Bus Pornhub episode <laughs> that you promised us in episode 17 about Radley Metzger. I don't remember that. <laughs> I quote, Justin, 100 episodes from now, it'll be the, the Important Cinema Club episode on Pornhub. Will Sloan, yeah, we'll do an episode about Bang Bus. <laughs> Will you keep this promise? Please do. We need people discussing the one thing almost everybody does, but nobody dares talk about. Keep up the good work, Elmer. Well, I think I talk about it a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot of podcasts that kind of talk about that. But uh, uh, but what do you think? Uh, you know Bang what? Bus episode? We'll see. Maybe a Patreon episode. I want to keep Elmer on like, you know, the edge of his seat that week where he goes and sees that it like updated to see what that episode is about. You know, that would be, it would be really funny if we did that. Although mm -hmm. it, it may be hard, be hard avoiding the true noxious sexism of Bang Bus. <laughs> I have never seen Bang Bus. You so never have? I don't even know what it is. Wow. Yeah, maybe we need to discover it together. Well, it involves a bus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell me more. Our second letter is from Andrew Barr, and he goes, Hey, guys. Prolific letter writer, Andrew Barr. We love him. I was just wondering, are there any filmmakers, film actors that you really can't understand the people's love of or hate of? Anything that no matter what you've read or had people tell you, you just don't see what they're seeing. There's a few movies and filmmakers that I'm completely baffled by the universal love of and for. I'd give a couple of examples, but you probably just make fun of me or call me crazy. Yes, we probably would. Your defense of Tyler Perry movies as being just not for me in a previous episode got me curious if there were any others in that category. Well, I mean, Tyler Perry is like very specific not for us. Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as like movies that everybody loves and I don't like... Uh, I'm sure there are some, and I'm sure I've talked about them before. I feel like I can usually justify if I don't like something mm -hmm. or if I like something, but are there other actors or filmmakers whose appeal um, just sort of sails by you? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one a little bit. He's made some movies that are fun, but some of the revisionist cinephile acclaim for Tony Scott, mm -hmm. I find a little baffling. I find, you know, the, the people who call him like an action painter on film. Oh, I have the perfect person that when the love for him comes out, I'm just baffled by. And specifically his recent movies. And that's Michael Mann. Okay. Yeah, like Miami Vice specifically. Okay, so I kind of liked Black Hat. I, oh, I like Black Hat. Yeah, I'm I'm interested as like a pulp kind of you know fun movie. But, but even visually, I was sort of interested in what he was doing. But the way people talk about Michael Mann, okay, like his super fans, like Miami Vice is their favorite film of all time, mm -hmm. and they talk about it in ecstatic tones, and that's something I don't understand. Uh, yeah, I've seen Miami Vice, and I've, yeah, I've seen and, it multiple times, and I feel like. 
I like what he's doing visually in that movie about 20% of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, 20% of the time it's really interesting, and then the rest, it looks like shit to me. And maybe I'm maybe it's like a magic eye painting where I'm not looking at it right. We've talked about doing a Michael Mann episode, but I really want to get like a Michael Mann like diehard on <laughs> as well as a guest to discuss Miami Vice, because I don't want to be like, I don't get it, which is what the that part of the episode would be. Because he's a guy who made like amazing films like Heat, Thief, like undeniably like like visual, like yeah, intoxicating. A man who is a master of the craft and, you know, his more recent films are clearly him trying to reach for some different kind of style, mm-hmm. some new horizon of, uh, of, of, of visual splendor or whatever. I don't know. I think that like, as far as being baffled by what people like love, for example, the Fifty Shades of Grey films are toxic, like, that's terrible kind of movies, but they're not for us. And at a certain point, like, if someone likes it, they like it. Mm. Because, like, there's movies that we like that are toxic and terrible. And, like, how can you enjoy this as well? Mm. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I don't begrudge people for liking stuff. No, I I don't either. Uh, I mean, that's the next question that Andrew asked is, also specifically for Justin, if someone tells you they like your movies, does it bug you if you find out that they are also huge fans of something you think is terrible? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, no, because they like the thing that I made. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters, I think. I, I I'll, Maybe I'll think mm-hmm. it like, whoa, they like my stuff, but they also like this. Uh, whatever, they like my stuff. And as long as I bring them joy in what I made, that's all that matters. Yeah, I mean, if somebody tells me they like watching uh, YouTube videos of like Jordan Peterson, mm-hmm. I might say, huh, yeah, that tells me something about you. Uh, but, but when it comes to movies... Yeah, it's easy on the internet to get angry when someone like likes or hates something that you don't like or hate. And I find myself over the keyboard, like ready to type something. And over the last few years, I've been like, no, why am I writing this? Like, why do I need to react to this? Like, what does kind of showing what I think and trying to cement it as the right thing display other than my own frailty of my beliefs? Movies don't matter. No, they don't. It, like, it's something toxic. It just comes down to pride. And I mean, that's why, like, fights happen or wars or whatever. And it's just like a microcosm <laughs> of that, like, I'm right and you're wrong. And that's what it boils down to. And it's like, if I like something, like, I like it. Uh, when it comes th- to politics, I feel that way. <laughs> but but, but, in, but, movies, but not, movies, not so much. It doesn't, ma- it yeah. doesn't matter. Unless, like you said, it's a movie that has, like, a really toxic ideology that's really popular. <laughs> something like, um, let's say, what was that Wu Jing film that we really most liked? Oh, uh, what was that called? Wolf Warrior. Yeah, which, yeah. Woof, <laughs> that yeah. is problematic. Yeah. And I'm sure if someone came after us and were like, how can you like this? Like, the politics of it are terrible, blah, blah, blah. We would have to be like, yes, it is. Yeah. Like, there's no way to deny that kind of stuff. Yeah. So don't be mean on the internet, folks. If you see someone that doesn't like the stuff you like. Okay, so next week, uh, after doing Steven Spielberg, there's a very logical follow-up to that, and that's filmmaker Joe D'Amato. <laughs> Joe D'Amato is kind of the Roger Corman of Italy, was the Roger Corman of Italy. He's passed now, but not as good as Roger <laughs> Corman. You may know him for producing Troll 2. Mm-hmm. You may know him for directing the Ator movies. Uh, Which were popularized on Mystery Science Theater 3000 as the Cave, cave Dweller. Dwellers. Yeah. yeah. 
But Joe D'Amato was a prolific director of Italian exploitation movies in all genres. He started at the bottom as like an assistant cameraman, made his bones as a cinematographer, became a director. And then worked his way all the way back to the bottom. <laughs> yep, where in the 90s, up to the day that he died, he continued making movies. And the only movies he could make in the 90s was hardcore pornography. But, you know, a lot of softcore stuff, a lot of, you know, zombie movies. Uh... And he's an interesting filmmaker in that you will be hard-pressed to find someone that would defend his movies. Even him himself. He has often said, I had great experiences making them, but I didn't care about them, and I just wanted to make money. Like, that's all that matters. And it's funny because we've seen, you know, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento. Mm -hmm. uh, most of these guys get a few... I mean, they have a lot of defenders, but most of them have fans. Yes. And D'Amato... He has, I guess you could say he has fans. I'm fascinated by him. But yeah, I'm fascinated by him too. Just the range of stuff he's I mean, done. He has fans because I have a book from France that is a <laughs> deluxe color, a hardcover about Joe D'Amato. Well, we'll have to talk about that. But, but he seems stubbornly resistant for the most part to mm -hmm. critical reappraisal. And so let's try. Yeah, let's try. Hopefully it won't be. Man, these films are bad. <laughs> and that's it. Uh, we're going to be watching uh, Buyo Omega. And Emmanuel in America. Nasty stuff. Yeah, uh, real bad. Uh, we'll probably dip into some of the other ones, too. Yeah, Emmanuel in America being the one that was famous for a snuff movie sequence that people believed was real. Oh, and Boy Omega is also known as Beyond the Darkness. And that's the one that its most famous attribute is its goblin score, which goes completely against what's happening on screen, which is a story of a uh, son who falls in love with necrophilia. And... By the way, this is just the tip of the iceberg of the D'Amato filmography. He has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of films. Mm -hmm. Will we perhaps uh, watch Aladdin XXX? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? So that's what we're going to be doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. We've been receiving a lot of letters over the last two weeks after complaining that we don't have any, and we really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Keep sending them. It also allows us to pad out the end stuff with letters. <laughs> yes. We got one from loyal listener David Fior, and it goes, Hello, Important Cinema Club. Thanks for the entertaining look at Brackage and all. You guys never disappoint. The discussion about sharing a snow screening with the grand old man himself, uh, I should point out that this uh, letter has a subject line, the snow must go on and on and on. And it's about Michael, Michael snow. snow. This reminds me of an experience I had about 10 years ago at Concordia in Montreal. Does snow make a point of attending all showings of wavelengths? Who knows? But he was there that night too. And we got to see Shorty. There's a bunch of S's and some extra T R's in there. That's why I'm saying it like that. <sighs> From 2005 in the bargain, if you consider that a bargain. Wavelengths? What are you going to do about it? When faced with his majestic zoom, the dutiful cineast must lie back and sink of formalism. <laughs> but Shorty touched off some real fireworks during the Q&A. Two things are required as background for this little tale of life at Concordia University during the late outs. One, Shorty, <laughs> from what I recall, is a film which presents nondescript characters speaking in Persian and walking around their living room for quite a while. Snow cleaves these cheap soap visuals in two and then runs the repeating halves over each other in a kind of snobious strip pattern. Ugh. It, go uh, woof. it goes on for a real long time. The cumulative effect is to strip moving slash talking people of all narrative significance. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a bit like the abstract dance beginning of Mulholland Drive, except not nearly as cool. Man, you're really ripping uh, Michael Snow <laughs> a new one here. Two. 
Enter. He can't defend himself. Enter somebody who this letter writer will call George, a student at the Mel Hoppenheim School. I got to know George really well during the year in question as I was working at the school's Visual Media Resource Center to supplement my grad school earnings. My duties entailed booking film print rentals for Hoppenheim classes and lending out DVDs, laser discs, etc., to a few Concordia students who were aware of our location on the second and a half floor of the hall building. George came in every day for the entirety of my tenure at the VMR. First, he would whet his cinematic appetite with a viewing of Jackie Chan's Police Story. I don't mean a film like Police Story. I mean he watched Police Story every fucking day. (laughs) That's dedication. (laughs) That's pretty good. Then he'd top it off with an Oscar-winning film. He just started going through them chronologically. One time I tried to warn him off watching The Great Ziegfeld. Have you ever seen that movie? No, I never have. Oh, wait. Maybe I... No, sorry, I saw Ziegfeld Follies. Okay. Anyway, he gave... (laughs) A big difference. (laughs) Yeah, who cares? (laughs) Why did I even specify? (laughs) He gave a smug smile and retired to his video cubicle. But when he returned to the film three hours later, he let out an agonized moan of Ziegfeld! Ugh, Ziegfeld! Give us a police story again! (laughs) To concede that I'd been right. Anyway, back to the snow screening. When the director solicited the first question... (laughs) It's a real slice of life. (laughs) George leapt to his feet and shrieked at the complacent avant-gardiste, Why you repeat these scenes over and over? Why you show these these things 30, 40 times? One time, two times, three times, okay. But why do you do this 30 or 40 times? A hush fell over the crowd. Snow. It's like I'm really there. (laughs) Snow, very much taken aback by this eruption of YouTube commentary, took a moment to collect his thoughts, but he did his best to explain the creative process which had led him to loop these bisected scenes over each other with such dogged tenacity. George listened politely, then capped off the conversation by observing, Michael Snow, 30, 40 times is too many. Why you do it so many times? You did not need to see it that many times. If only he had shrieked, Ziegfeld, the evening would have been absolutely perfect. Anyway, Snow behaved extremely well under adverse artistic conditions. <laughs> he rose considerably in my estimation that See, this night. is like storytelling, right? He started bashing Snow, and then he lifts yeah. Snow up at the end, and he lifts him so much higher because he bashed him at the beginning. He rose considerably in my estimation that night, despite the lackluster nature of the films. And I already kind of loved him for abridging wavelength into wavelength for those who don't have time by chopping <laughs> it up and turning it into a Neapolitan ice cream viewing experience. I don't know what that means. He's a national treasure. Excelsior, Dave Fior. Uh, thank you, Dave. It's a very funny letter. Uh, a little long, I gotta tell <laughs> yeah, you. A little bit long. But very funny. And, and all I can all, all I can really say to add... Uh, Have you ever had that experience of like being in a screening where the audience was like angry at the filmmakers and they were there in the room? Um, I feel like I have, but the only one that's really coming to mind that's an instance like that is I saw Gaspar Noe's Love mm. at TIFF and during the Q&A, somebody stood up and asked Gaspar Noe, um, what was the point of that movie? And then Gaspar Noe, to his credit, said, um, I will quote Alfred Hitchcock. If I had a message to deliver, I would go to a post office. <laughs> That's great. Uh, but I would also say, by the way, if you're visiting Toronto, go to the Eaton Center and you'll see the um, d- the sculpture hanging from the ceiling of the geese. Michael Snow made that. Good sculpture. 
Also, if you go to the Sky Dome, also known as the Rogers Center, our big uh, baseball field, there's a, there are some gargoyles on the side of it. I'm talking to the non-Toronto listeners, <laughs> yeah, Justin. Okay. Don't laugh at me. There's a gargoyle on the side of it with, you know, big, big statues of fans and the bleachers. Michael Snow designed that. Man, well, what, what a, a time to be alive where uh, they would approach Michael Snow and go, we want you to do this giant thing in one of the most popular places in Toronto. You know, the Eaton Center geese display, mm-hmm. that was a very famous court case because the Eaton Center I remember yeah yeah. the Eaton Center put Santa Claus hats on the geese during Christmas and he sued them for that and he won so it was an important precedent for the rights of the artist in Canada oh perfect very interesting uh the only thing I could too bad that guy in the audience at Concordia didn't appreciate that (laughs) well I mean look if you do something great and then do something shitty you know (laughs) You can tactfully let them know your displeasure. Not doing a Q&A. Like, all that is is, like, look at me and how smart I am. Also, I think Michael Snow deserves your respect if he's there in the room. <laughs> yeah, he Which is. is why I did not walk out when he they put on that video of his free jazz performance. <laughs> and you said publicly on the podcast that it was shit. And, like, why am I watching this? Michael Snow's not going to listen to this. <laughs> what if he does? Uh, feel free to come on the podcast. <laughs> um, I think one of the only times I can think of someone being, like really aggressive toward the filmmakers usually happens during midnight madness screening people are tired what they watch is either transgressive or trying to be transgressive and during a screening of um martyrs the new french extremity movie uh someone in the audience was like uh you're just doing what michael haneke does but worse oh that's mean and the director was like you know what i fucking hate michael haneke fuck (laughs) michael haneke (laughs) which is the tactful response to someone that just wants to make a scene yeah uh before i forget I have to do this at the end of every episode now. Uh, where can people follow you on Twitter, Will? Uh, yeah, I'm at Will Sloan Esquire. That's Will Sloan ESQ. I'm at J. You can also follow me on Letterboxd by searching my name, Justin the Clue. That's also my username. And visit FilmTrap.com because we post like show notes that go with the episodes, like trailers and summaries. And if we do a list, it'll also appear on there.